Before many days, that it is not every man who can command an army of 150,000 men. Who said that? And who was he talking about? We'll find out when we return on Civil War Talk Radio. For the people in our military, it's a time of sacrifice and duty. That's why all four military aid societies have joined together to form the Armed Forces Relief Trust to help military families cope with financial and medical emergencies at home. With so many serving overseas, the need is greater than ever. You can learn more and donate at www.afrtrust.org. A message from the National Association of Broadcasters and this station. It's a wake-up call. It's time to get serious about preparation. And to understand that the threat is very real. This is a message from the U.S. Department of Homeland Security, recorded by Roger Kilfoyle, New York City firefighter. The topic: getting serious. It's irrelevant where you live or how many people live in your community or other variables like that. It's it's America. America is the target, not just New York. We know there are some positive things that you can do to better prepare yourself and your family. It's simple steps to prepare yourself for events that may be out of your control. So, you know, having these little supplies together, you can prepare for problems that may happen. Learn to be prepared at www.ready.gov or call for a free brochure. One eight hundred be ready. That's one eight hundred two three seven three two three nine. A public service message brought to you by the Ad Council. Listen. The world is talking. World Talk Radio, Studio A. Welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, talking today with George Rabel, the University of Alabama, and author of Fredericksburg, Fredericksburg, and numerous other works on the Civil War era. We talked in our first section a little bit about the battle itself and. About the challenge of writing a new kind of battle history, not a traditional, purely military history, of which there are many fine examples, and we've certainly talked about them on this show before, but an attempt to give a fuller picture of not just the soldiers' experience, but uh, that of uh, their families, the voters, the, the politicians, the generals, the soldiers, uh, everybody involved in living through the time when a battle takes place. And uh, uh, during the introduction to this segment, I threw in a quote from the book uh, that I found uh, that struck a chord with me, uh, a famous uh, Civil War figure who says, they will find out before many days that it is not every man who can command an army of 150,000 men. Uh, George, do you remember that quote from the book? I hope it's McClellan. <laughs> It, well, it's actually his successor. It's um, Burnside. Eh? Yeah, that's what struck me about it. It's very McClellan-esque. Uh, it's exactly the kind of thing you'd expect McClellan to say. Uh, you, you describe very clearly the transition from McClellan to Burnside in command of the Army of the Potomac and how difficult that was uh, you know, for the soldiers. And, and uh, Your portrait of McClellan is not very flattering, although I 
can't think of anyone who does paint a flattering portrait of him. Uh, well, there are some, I should say. But I was struck by how Burnside responded uh, in such a similar way when he was removed. Uh, what did you think of General Burnside? Well, Burnside will always be, I think, almost a cartoonish figure in Civil War history. Uh, people want to dismiss Burnside as kind of an amiable fool. Uh, there's a lot more to Burnside than meets the eye. I mean, I, I don't think I'd go as far as my friend Bill Marvel's uh, biography of Burnside and in uh, really kind of revising our picture of Burnside, but uh, Burnside is a very appealing figure in some ways. I mean, he first of all, he turned down the command several times. Uh, he informed Lincoln on more than one occasion that he didn't think he was up to the job. He had the gift of self-knowledge. He, 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 had a, he had a great deal of self-knowledge, and of course he was ill-served uh, by taking over the army from McClellan, who remained very popular uh, in large segments of the army. He has to deal with some McClellan loyalists who do not serve him well. Uh, he has to deal with General Joe Hooker, who thinks he should be in command of the army. And I think one of the things I discovered about Burnside, and, I, I, uh, and I'm not sure this is a, is, is a stunning insight, but I think it's certainly true, Burnside really didn't have many enemies. People liked Burnside, uh, certainly on a personal basis. Uh, he and McClellan had gotten along very well, at least up until Antietam. There was some friction uh, over the conduct of the Battle of Antietam. The problem with Burnside is people liked him, but he didn't really have anyone who would go to the mat for him. McClellan had political allies. Uh, Hooker had political allies. Burnside really didn't. So if Burnside gets in trouble, there's nobody in Washington who's really going who's really going to stand by him. I, I think Lincoln rather liked Burnside. Uh, at least in terms of a contrast of dealing with McClellan and Hooker and some of the others. Well, I, think, I thought that was a very interesting insight. That uh, I'm, I am in my second year as acting department chair here at ECU, and when I was reading your description of how Burnside had no enemies but also had no friends, I, uh, the academic politics just came to mind. I was thinking <laughs> of who in the college has allies, who doesn't, uh, who gets along, but, but nobody would support them if they needed it. Uh, it it's how groups work. And uh, uh, McClellan, or Burnside, as you say, really had no, n no loyalists, no, nobody who would stick their neck out for him. And, when it, and he wouldn't do it for himself, I would even argue. I think uh, that's, that's true until he finally got so exasperated he was willing to you know, let some heads roll, and by that time it was too late. Well, and that's the other thing. He, he seems to me to overcompensate. He's aware of his own weaknesses, and so when he finally decides to do something like charge up Murray's Heights, he overcompensates and does it to an extreme. Yes. I mean, he, he has trouble making up his mind, but when he, once he makes up his mind, he, he won't readily change it. Yeah. So I think one of the great one of the great sort of myths of Fredericksburg is it was just this idiot Burnside launching attack after attack with no reason um, and not recognizing that he, first of all, assumed that there was more success on the Union left south of town than there actually was. Uh, secondly, there was misleading information that came to him about 
shifts in Confederate artillery on Marie's Heights that was interpreted as perhaps the, the Confederates were withdrawing some of their forces. So there are some there are some sort of mitigating circumstances. I mean, yeah, it still comes down to the fact that Burnside makes blunders, he reinforces failure. I mean, there's there's plenty of you know plenty of blame I think to assign to to Burnside there, but he was not. He was ill-served by his subordinates, um, and yeah. he also had a plan that had some merits to it, uh, at least before the delay in the pontoons. And I think people forget that Lee was really ready to abandon Fredericksburg if the if the Federals had been able to move more quickly, and certainly if the if the uh, bridging material for the pontoon bridges had been there when the Federals arrived in November. Uh, there probably would not have been a battle fought at Fredericksburg at all. So he is held up by bad logistics uh, during the battle. His you know, and then again, you, you get to the question of is Henry Halleck, you know, responsible for the delay in the pontoons? What did Burnside explain himself clearly? What he needed? Uh, and there'll always be there'll there'll always be uh, there'll always be controversy. Uh, you know, on, on those points, but certainly, if you want to, there, there, there are plenty of there, there are plenty of people to find fault with at 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 Fredericksburg. And even though I was not interested in kind of refighting the battle in that sense of going into great detail and who was to blame for this, that, and the other thing, I obviously had to deal with those uh, uh, to deal with those points. I found it much more interesting, actually, to explore what the soldiers thought about it in the aftermath of the battle. And that was. Well, I, I think that's one of the issues you, you find in Civil War battle writing is the, the Monday morning quarterbacking, the attempt to say this general blundered here and this guy did that wrong there. The secret plan at Gettysburg and things like that. Yeah, exactly. And uh, tying it back into the, the quote I started with, <clears throat> Burnside is right when he says they will find not every man can command an army of 150,000. It's all very well for us to say in our offices or uh, wherever we're writing that, though. You know, Burnside was a fool, or McClellan was a fool, but it's it, it's not easy. Just, uh, I mean, I I can't get the family van loaded and out the door on time for vacation with four people. Uh, to get 150,000 people to do anything is uh, a real leadership challenge. So, so critiquing these these generals for their failures, I think, often misses the context that it was a remarkable they could accomplish anything at all. And I think it, it often does ignore, as you point out, the logistical problems. I mean, I'm, in some ways, I think I became almost too interested in the, in the logistics of, of things when I when I studied Fredericksburg. But I mean, it was important to know, you know, how long it takes to march from point X to point Y, how many wagons you have to bring, the, the amount of supplies, and all of that. And, and 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 delays, mistakes, bad maps. Uh, if you study any Civil War battle, you recognize that it was very difficult to command armies of this, of this size. There were there were bound to be major blunders, even in the best executed battle plans. Mm. Uh, you you wonder at times if there was really any general, given the limits of communication, staff, etc., who could really command an army of over a hundred thousand men effectively. Um, well, there's that old saying that amateurs study tactics, professionals study logistics. 
uh, military saying, and uh, logistics really, <coughs> excuse me, really are the heart of of getting anything done uh, on the battlefield or pretty much anywhere in life. Sure. Uh, you have to get things there. Now, you mentioned the soldier's experience. Um, what what uh, did anything leap out at you as you were reading the soldiers' accounts of this battle? Well, I became very interested in how soldiers assessed what had happened in the battle and what had happened to them, and really what this all meant for the for the uh, longer course of the war. Uh, the the stunning Confederate confidence, overconfidence after Fredericksburg, uh, I found to be quite remarkable. Uh, on the other hand, the Union the Union comments are just heart wrenching. It places, talking about pointless slaughter, butchery, uh, that sort of thing. And the morale crisis in the Army of the Potomac is, 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 is an important subject of which there's voluminous primary materials because, you know, they're in, <coughs> they're in winter quarters with the exception of the ill-fated mud march. But, uh, so they have lots of time to, to write home, to write in their diaries and, and, and that sort of thing, and figuring out Okay, what had happened to them? Where do we go from here? Um, and you know, most battle books kind of end where the battle ends. And what I tried to do, actually, a third of my book covers the kind of the aftermath of the battle. Of course, the mud march, the the, the ill-fated attempt to outflank Lee, is part of that story. But but I, I think that's an interesting point that that the soldiers don't know the battle is over necessarily, or that the the campaign is over. And they still have a lot to say. You also write quite a bit about the religious views of the soldiers, which is something absent from a lot of Civil War writing, or, or has been in the past. It's coming around now. Right. Uh, what, what did you see there? Well, it's, it's something I'd been sort of interested in periodically in some of the other things I, I had done. Um, it, religion really became part of the larger story of who these soldiers were. They're family members, they're citizens, they're soldiers, they have a spiritual life. You know, they're worried about their finances, they're worried about when they're being paid. They, they have all the kind of range of interests and human emotions that, that we do, and religion is, is an important part of that, and it, it offered for some a kind of meaning for the war itself. Uh, it certainly offers comfort for the grieving, consolation in, in light of all the casualties, um, which is another subject that I, I think battle historians, have, they not only neglect religious life, they, they neglect uh, really the aftermath of the, the battle. How do you deal with all the dead and wounded? Um, and again, this is a subject like religion that's sort of generated more interest recently, but it's not something that that battle historians have paid a whole lot of attention to. Well, I, I've interviewed, uh, in the last couple of weeks, uh, I talked to Peter Cousins last week, uh, whose new battle history of the Shenandoah campaign just came out, and uh, uh, Noah Andre Trudeau on the uh, on Sherman's March, and Gary Eckelbarger on part of the Shenandoah campaign of 62. And in all three cases, the same issue came up of discussing casualties and how to write about them uh, where to find the line between uh, whitewashing them, not describing them at all, uh, the individual casualties, just collectively saying the army uh, took a bruising, uh, anthropomorphizing the whole army, 
or describing uh, in, in gory detail individual wounds and death uh, w- without going too far that direction and, and seeming to enjoy it or, or, or right. get a, a sort of vicarious thrill like watching a, a slasher movie. Uh, you're, you have an entire chapter uh, just on wounds. In which and you one talk, on death, too. And so. another on death. So, <laughs> But it's very clear, uh, I don't want the listeners to mistake, there's no... Uh, uh, your your approach is, is very professional and very uh, you know, both analytic and empathetic uh, at the same time. Um, but that, well, how did you see these topics? Well, it, it it just struck me as death was an important part of the subject, and it, I mean it's been rather a scandal that we've had no studies of Civil War death really until Drew Faust's new book came out. You know, of any great you know, of any great worth, and uh, yet death was an important part of the was an important part of the uh, of the Civil War, and how people came to grips with that. Sometimes, in just uh, one of the most extraordinary documents I ran across was a uh, a document from a Maine soldier who described how, after Fredericksburg, Christmas packages came into camp for people who had died in battle. And so they just had to cast lots and just distribute them to the living. I mean, that's just a small, a very small incident, but I think it spoke volumes about how deeply those deaths just touched even the rhythms of everyday life, including the celebration of a holiday. Um, You know, and I think you're right, you have to strike a balance between a kind of military pornography on the one hand and a kind of antiseptic treatment of battle on the other. I think I'd rather err on the side of presenting the, you know, the full dimensions of war and and showing people bleeding than to just kind of fight it in an almost gamesmanship way. Well, that that really is, you put that very well, that's really the the, the two pillars that, people need to steer between when they're writing about this. And, uh, and and certainly that's what happens, I think, in this book. Uh, another element that, that you bring up a lot of that is missing from other battle books, and logically so because uh, they're fought in the middle of nowhere often, like Shiloh or Perryville, uh, the civilian population. Uh, you, you have quite a lot to say about them. Well, that was a... Th- that was a somewhat unusual aspect of Fredericksburg because you're actually fighting in a town. Uh, you have street warfare on, uh, particularly on December 11 when the when the Federals cross, and then you have civilians that leave before the battle. You have civilians that leave during the battle. You have civilians that stay put, um, and the suffering of the Fredericksburg civilians in turn becomes a uh, becomes a big item in Confederate propaganda. I mean, it's yet more evidence of what these dastardly Yankees will do. Um, and so, in several different ways, the story of the Fredericksburg civilians becomes very much a, a, a part of the a part of the larger story of the uh, of the battle itself. And I, I, you know, one of the things that you always wish for is that there would just be a few. I mean, there there, there are fairly good civilian accounts of Fredericksburg, but you know, you just wish there were even more. Um, that you could even get a fuller picture of the um, of the civilian population. You know, the damage inventories that uh, 
were available in kind of local records in Fredericksburg are very interesting where folks listed what they had lost during the battle, what had been destroyed. Um, and of course the looting of the the looting of the homes in Fredericksburg itself is really really extraordinary and something that everybody uh, on both sides commented on. It it really it, it uh I mean as Lincoln said in uh, the second inaugural, no one expected a a result so fundamental and astounding. No one expected that Americans could carry on in this way, looting the homes of other Americans, smashing their goods, wearing their clothes, uh uh, behaving in such a fashion, but war does that. No one, no one could expect things that uh, that our soldiers have done in any wars. But, exactly. but war has its own dynamic. On, on that uh, somber note, we'll take another short break, and we'll come back in just a minute. Talk some more with our guest, George Rabel, when we return on Civil War Talk Radio. <laughs> <laughs> 